This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and we're here again another week it's, it's us we're back um we are here we're going to talk about the yiddish policeman's union by michael shabon which andrew read for this show here yeah union strong <laughs> can you real quick give me the pitch on our uh, our podcast program andrew how does it work Every week in this just interminable, never-ending year, <laughs> one of us reads a book that we've never read before and tells the other person about it. Great. And you, the audience, gets to come along with the ride. If you read along with the person who read it, then you probably have some insight or some maybe things we don't mention that you yell at your radio about. Yep. Radio. Yeah, <laughs> you yell sort at your, of. You yell at your iPod shuffle about. <laughs> And if you just want to listen to us talk about a book so you don't have to read it, that also is valid. I feel like maybe this isn't fair to Michael Shabon. I do feel like Michael Shabon books, like he, he's kind of the tier of author whose book you get or are gifted and it does just stare at you from your shelf for a while funny, before you get to it. Funny that you should say that. On episode mm -hmm. 86 of this very podcast, I read Summerland by Michael Shabon. Mm -hmm. um, which was a book that was gifted to me because I had read Yiddish Policeman's <laughs> Union. I had read Manhood for Amateurs and I liked Michael Shabon. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll read that book someday. Good thing I have a book podcast. Um, <laughs> and again, that is not a value judgment at all. It's no. just he is a he's a well-reviewed author. And so you like, oh, I heard good things about that book. And yes. so you either buy it or somebody hears you say that and gives it to you. And then life comes at you fast or at whatever speed it comes at you at. And you just don't get around to it for a while. And that's fine. I went back and listened to the beginning of that episode, Andrew. Give me how long do you think it took out of a 54 minute episode for us to start talking about Shabon or the book? Oh, this nine minutes, seven minutes. Okay, I, all right. I interviewed you about touching a turtle because you had just been away on your honeymoon. Oh, yeah, I did touch a turtle. We're not supposed to do that. No, and I think I was just so excited to talk to you again that I didn't really care about talking about the book I'd read. Um, and you told me that being underwater freaks you out, quote, because I could die and the water doesn't care about me. Is what you yeah, said. Yeah, that, that tracks. Um, so just, you know. I if, get, I mean, I get claustrophobic and being underwater is like yeah. being encased in a wall at all times. Like you are, it's, it's an enclosed space all around you forever. And there's not even, there's nothing. There's no air around you at all. <laughs> yeah. I got freaked out. I didn't like it. I tried really hard. If folks want to know what bad. I don't like about the ocean, they they can go back and listen to episode 86. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to our one of our Patreon supporters, Kirk, who recommended this book to us. 
Kirk said, I was hoping to request The Yiddish Policeman's Union by Michael Shabon. I've been trying to read more books by Jewish authors lately, and I found it very compelling and exciting. I read this book back in 2009? 2009? I, think. <laughs> I was going to say, it would, it would have to be before early 2013, because Which if you'd read pod, it... Yeah. Yeah, because if you read it after that, we would have talked about it already. This was in a period of my life where I had just graduated from college and I was working mostly part time at the theater and I had time in certain shows uh, to read books while I was technically on the clock because there wasn't much to do on some of those shows. So uh, now that I've said that out loud on a recording, I was <laughs> I read this book and I remember liking it, but I mostly just remember the mood and the alternate history stuff. Um, we should talk about Shabon first, though, before we actually. Yeah, what do you want to? What do you want to revisit? Because it's been several years, <laughs> many since years. we talked about yes. him, and so it's entirely possible that he's done a bunch of <laughs> new stuff. Uh, I'll do like the real Cliff Notes version. He was born in 1963 in Washington D.C. He studied at U Pitt, UC Irvine. Um, he has a bunch of novels and books, including his first, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, published in 1988, which actually started as his master's thesis. His professor, like, sneakily gave it to an agent and got him a contract, and he he became famous and was like, is my thesis done yet? Like, <laughs> which seems fun. He published The Wonder Boys in 1995. He won the Pulitzer for Amaz The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which I'm sure we'll end up reading six years from now, um, which is about two Jewish cousins who make comics in the 1940s leading up to World War II. Uh -huh. uh, Summerland, which I mentioned, Man and for Amateurs. He wrote a serial novel called Gentleman of the Road, Telegraph Avenue in 2012, Moonglow in 2016. Uh, another author and critic, Lev Grossman, has referred to his work alongside people like Margaret Atwood and Susanna Clark, people who play with genre fiction for kind of like a mix of for lack of a better term lowbrow highbrow kind of mixed like i'm experimenting with a genre but also doing other things with it we've read plenty of books like that but he has a particular panache for it sure and then this book's contribution to that is like pot boiler like noir detective-y yes. stuff where the uh landsman the detective in this book is just like ludicrously almost i i feel like i don't know if it's supposed to be to the point of parody but it almost is like how <laughs> hard boiled and down on his luck this guy is that's a, see i I said at the beginning of 2020 that I wanted to read Raymond Chandler for this podcast, and I've yet to do it. Maybe I will, because this book is clearly taken from that model, and I don't know how much of it is parody. Like, it's, <laughs> it might just be that. I don't know. Um, the, other, the thing about, the thing about yeah. Raymond Chandler is I don't know whether to make an Everybody Loves Raymond Chandler joke or, uh, like, could I be writing any more of a genre book? Wow. I got a Google. Those are both solid gold rocking jokes, and I yeah. don't know which one I would go with. I got a Bing. Which of those jokes is better? Um, and get back to you on that one. Sure. I almost said I got to Google it on Bing, which just doesn't make. I any mean, sense. I think people have said that though. <laughs> um, other things about Mr. Shabon, he has a, a horror slash fantasy fiction uh, persona called August Van Zorn which isn't just a pen name he uses. It is a pen name for a fictional man named Albert Vetch, 
who was apparently a a quote unquote contemporary of folks like H.P. Lovecraft and wrote a bunch of weird fiction, quote unquote, wrote. Um, and Shabon has published a bunch of stories under that name. He also did some writing on Sam Raimi's Spider-Man Two. <laughs> he wrote that like was a, a good one though. That's it was if he'd, write, if he'd written one. on Spider-Man Three, like no way, no thank yeah. you. Um, and he, Andrew, I don't know if you know this. He's the sh- he was the showrunner on the first season of Star Trek Picard. I did know that. I know you have mixed and... feelings about Star Trek Picard. Mm, yeah, this not isn't even really mixed. Po- I don't know. This isn't this isn't the podcast for it. I wanted th- of the three new Star Trek shows. There's yeah. there's Discovery, which has characters who I really like doing stuff I don't care about. There is Picard, which is mostly characters I don't care about. Except surrounding for- <laughs> a character I do care about. <laughs> okay who are doing things I don't understand. Sure. <laughs> and then there's the cartoon Lower Decks, which I actually kind of like. like. That it's show got, a lot. it's got like a like a early Futurama vibe mm. that I'm kind of digging. Mm-hmm. You might like it. I should probably give it a shot actually, yeah. Yeah. Um there put that on the list of the dozens of cartoons that Andrew has told me to watch. Yeah. For yeah. The last yeah. 10 years. Um so let's get into this book specifically uh the oh, Yiddish okay. book podcast. Yeah, the, sorry, switch on back. Um, the Yiddish Policeman's Union was published in 2007. It is an alternate history where a temporary settlement for Jewish refugees uh, was settled in Alaska. We'll talk more about what that means um, when we get in the book. It won a number of sci-fi fiction awards, Hu- the Hugo, the Nebula, the Locus. Um, it was shortlisted for the Edgar Allan Poe Award, among others. Um, and so even you just mentioning it more as detective fiction up front, I think... As I was trolling reviews of it online, the sci-fi connection seemed very tenuous. Yeah, do we know why sci-fi? Like, there, there is no time travel element. There's no, like, moment where Landsman gets a glimpse of a portal into another I world people, or anything. Maybe people just do don't people know, just what not to know where do, to put it. They don't know what to do with speculative fiction, I think. And, and speculative historical fiction at that gets slotted into a sci-fi realm for well, some if you, reason i guess if you wanted to lump this in with like man in the high castle or something yeah, you yeah. kind of sort of could but that book does have like alternate <laughs> history portals in it so, um, so the, the other book that came out around this one was philip roth's the plot against america which has become what an fx series or something like that probably um and this book that's what I've watched. has been uh picked up by cbs uh it was announced in early 2019 I don't know if they have actually made any headway on production. Um, Shabon, do you know? Do you happen to know whether it is a CBS show or a CBS All Access show? That um, would probably dictate whether people actually watch it or not. CBS Television Studios, Patma Productions, and Keshet Studios to premium okay. cable and streaming networks. So okay. who knows? Um, and he had ri- he had wrote the initial script with his wife Ayala Waldman, who is another writer. He has done a lot of projects with. Um, we'll probably end up talking about her a little bit. Uh, the like genesis of this book co- is um, an essay he wrote in know, maybe the late nineties. <sighs> yeah, um, in Harper's for Harper's. Yeah, guidebook yeah. to a land of ghosts, where he talks about a a linguistic guidebook called Say It in Yiddish, which is part of a Dover series that was like, say it in blank, like every language that you could think of. 
and he remarks in this essay um, about kind of the like abs- I think his term is the absurd poignance of this book, which was edited by Uriel and Beatrice Weinreich or Weinreich. Um, that like there would be a country where you would use like which way to the airport in Yiddish. Um, because f- from his perspective and his experience of Judaism and, and uh, j- his own Jewishness and Yiddish, that like there isn't a place for that. Like in Israel, Hebrew is the official language. I think 2% of the people in Israel speak Yiddish. Um, it is not like the language of a, of a nation state. So to have it, put- yeah, no, it's it's a good language to like insult somebody in. <laughs> <laughs> sure, is my understanding. Uh, and I think one of the quote, one of the quotes from the essay is, "What does it mean to originate from a place, from a world, from a culture that no longer exists, and from a language that may die in this generation? What phrases would I need to know in order to speak to those millions of unborn phantoms to whom I belong? Just what am I supposed to do with this book?" The essay did get pushback from folks who speak Yiddish and are like, "Listen, I speak this language; it's not going to die. I'm going to keep it alive. What are you talking about?" Um, and that is like a little bit of. Shaban's relationship to Jewishness and Judaism overall, I think he is like, he, he is very opinionated and he represents American Jewish culture specifically. Um, he has gotten pushback from, you know, various people throughout the, the Jewish diaspora based on his views, but he's also, you know, been a voice for a lot of people in the Jewish diaspora. So I just kind of want to mention that up top. Um, there was a New York Times article about this book in 2007 where they actually went to with him to the spot in Alaska where this book is set. Um, yeah, Sitka. It's a real place. Sitka, Alaska. Because it was based... That was a real thing. Um, the Slattery Report. There was a proposal in FDR's administration to move European refugees, mostly Jews from Nazi Germany and Austria, to settlements in then-territorial Alaska... Yeah, which would and, and, yeah, circumvent that, that immigration have... quotas. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's yeah. It was it was shortly after Kristallnacht, I, th- I think, and mm-hmm. FDR was not for it. FDR, nope. who had, who did not have a fantastic, not a uh, amazing reputation on yep. on some of this stuff surrounding World War II, but um, but yeah, he. So in the book, the reason why it um why this plan like makes it through Congress in his past and becomes a thing is because uh, the like Alaska territories, non-voting representative in Congress at the time who was, who would have been against it or who was against it was like hit by a car and died. Oh, okay. (laughs) And in real, in real life, as far as I can tell, I mean, it's mostly just FDR wasn't for it. And in what then was like an overwhelmingly democratic Congress, like anything that the president was not behind, I don't think was going to get a whole lot of pickup. So it just didn't. It just didn't happen. Yeah. But the, the like vis-a-vis world war two and the, and the Holocaust, the effect of this policy going into place in the book is to reduce the death toll of the Holocaust from Mm. 6 million to 2 million, which listen, still a lot, but that's 4 million people as many. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it, it says in that New York Times article, um, he had not realized that it's that he goes back to say it in Yiddish. 
Um, and he says he had not realized that its revered authors wrote the book at the request of the publisher because Yiddish was spoken widely in Israel in the 1950s and in other communities around the world. Uh, Shabin said, I had a double reaction. I don't like having my ignorance pointed out to me. I was embarrassed and shamed. I had the nice Jewish boy impulse that I disrespected my elders and caused pain and embarrassment, but I also felt a total sense of irritation and spite. Oh, yeah, that offended you? Well, I'm going to write a novel, and you think that was offensive? Just wait. <laughs> uh, and he, you know, in multiple interviews, um, kind of resists, like, taking a stance on the, like, you know, people try to get him into a, a place where he's like, well, you wrote this alternate history where Israel didn't happen. How do you feel about Israel? And he's like, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. Um, though he did publish a book with um, Ayelet Waldman in 2017. It's a collection of authors writing about the occupation of Palestine um, called a King- Kingdom of Olives and Ashes. Um where they work with an organization called Breaking the Silence, which is writing about the occupation of the West Bank. Um, and so he is not a fan of that, uh, of that occupation, and he has kind of made that clear in, in his work since this book. But he is not, he has also resisted any sort of like bait to, well, what would you do about the two state solution? He's like, that's not my job. I'm here to tell you about what I think about you know, human experience and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, which maybe we'll get into when we talk about the plot of the book, because I think there's it, it might be relevant. Uh, but first, we have to take a break, Andrew. I'm sorry to say. Or I'm happy to say. Craig, you know what I like to do when I'm not reading books? What? Watch TV. I know that about you. It's true. I do like to watch TV. One place where you can watch TV is... AMC Network's Acorn TV. It's home to sophisticated and artful storytelling rooted in British television. You know all those good adaptations of British shows that come over here? Why don't you just go back and watch the originals instead of watching adaptations? Okay, that sounds good to me. Come on, go back to the source. Uh, With Acorn TV, you get access to premium commercial-free international content, all for an unbeatable price of just $5.99 a month. Uh, it works with all your favorite devices, uh, including uh, Apple and Android devices like your phone and tablet, uh, your Fire TV from Amazon, your Google Chromecast, your Roku, and pretty much whatever you have connected to your TV. And uh, they add new releases every Monday, so uh, you can choose from thousands of hours of exclusives, originals, and deep cuts that you won't find anywhere else. Craig, if I want to take advantage of this incredible deal, what do I need to do? Well, you want to go to acorn.tv that is acorn.tv you'll find stuff from ireland canada australia new zealand and beyond you'll get shows like the other one you'll get shows like miss marples no not miss marples miss fisher's murder mysteries i think there's miss marples on there because there's lots of agatha christie on there that's why i had that (laughs) uh they got classics like slings and arrows as well as the adaptation of zadie smith's white teeth so if you want to escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat, try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use the promo code OVERDUE. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV. Offer code OVERDUE to get your first 30 days for free. Craig, I've spent all my money on TV services. 
<laughs> and now I'm in debt. Oh, what, no. What should I do? It sounds like you should turn to our other sponsor this week, Empathize.com. If you've got debt, and it sounds like you do, Andrew, and you're looking for an easy and low-stress way to take control of your finances, you should look into Empathize.com. You can use Empathize.com to pay any credit card or loan on one screen. You just make a plan to get debt-free using their tools to track interest rates, check for unexpected transactions on your cards, and get an overview of your finances. They have like a slider where you can calculate like what day your cards will be paid down, and the interest rate stuff helps you plan which cards you should pay down first if that is a situation you find yourself in. So to get started, go to empathize.com slash overdue to give it a try. It's 100% free to get started. Just go to empathize.com slash overdue. So, Andrew, tell me about this sci-fi murder mystery, alternate history, (laughs) Yiddish words, I don't know. Like, what is happening in this book, please? I don't remember, honestly. Let's just agree that this is not a sci-fi novel. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think that's probably the, the, no the, one knew the, what to do. The, the awards people in their ivory towers can can make whatever calls that they want, but there is neither. I mean, there's fiction. Yeah, there's fi, but there ain't no sci. All right, I didn't see no sci in this. <laughs> so as we set up a little bit in our introduction, uh, this is an alternate history novel where the so what happens is the nation. Of Israel, in addition to the slattery report stuff. So there is a section in Alaska, and if you want to know where Sitka is in Alaska, if you imagine like Alaska as being like that big square on top of those little tentacles, you know, yeah. you got the left tentacle and the right tentacle, <laughs> yeah. or maybe legs if you want. Sitka's on the on the right tentacle. So so relatively close the to the contiguous United States. Yeah, and and to Canada, and okay. less close to Russia. Sure, sure. Um, so this, this territory exists. It is not like a state. It is not independent of the United States. It is not permanent. Oh, it is a, it is a temporary thing, um, as laid out in the original like legislation. Um, so that has, that has happened. And also the other big departure point, and there are a few other small ones we can talk about, though they are not really material to the content of the book. But in the year 1948, um, the then fledgling like state of Israel, which had just been reestablished, was destroyed like three months after being created. And it is just, it's all Palestine and it is, it is all like various uh, Arabic sects, Muslim sects, sort of fighting over that okay. land, and it is not Israel as we as we know it today. Okay, so the book kind of just forecloses on dealing with this with Sitka uh, or and the people who have settled there. Is that what they refer to it as? Is it referred to as something else? Does like the community have a different name? Um, I don't remember Maybe? that one. Okay. Um, but like anybody who settles in Sitka, it's not also like, and what if I go to Israel one like Israel has, no, it's not, Israel doesn't exist. There's no, no, there's no. So that's, that is what is, is happening is we are getting close to the end of this like temporary period. And, um, the native populations who this land was taken from are, 
uh, going to be able to come in and take it back. And so a lot of people from uh, Sitka are sort of wondering where they're going to go. Some people are hoping to stay where they are in the, you know, in the U.S. technically. Um, some people are moving to Canada. Some people are moving elsewhere. Um, but yeah, you've got the pressure of this. Um, um, it's called the reversion. This this situation that reverts this this temporary Jewish settlement back to uh, the U.S. and to the Tlingit natives, the people who used to live there okay. and still do live there. And there there are a lot. There's a lot of like intersection between those uh, cultures, including um, Landsman, the main character, like his cousin and partner Burko is a um the son of like a Jewish father and a Tlingit mother okay and so there's a lot of I don't I don't think we're necessarily going to get as far into that as we are into like just the the main plot stuff and the um the alternate history stuff but there are some intersections of those of those cultures that are interesting and that Chabon like explores a little bit okay yeah i think um, i remember a little bit of that and there's certainly been some uh like reviews of the book or papers on the book that at least nod to that as a as an analog to the israel palestine situation like the creation of a state where people already were kind of thing that mm-hmm. is an is an issue um but it i don't know if that's a one to one in shape well and they mind. and they so they i mean they talk about multiple times about the sort of the bill of goods that uh jewish immigrants were sold like moving to this place the one thing that didn't come true is this is not like filled with polar bears and penguins and all kinds <laughs> of like cool arctic animals <laughs> So you see a lot of like shops with names that evoke like walruses and like <laughs> Arctic stuff, but it just is not that isn't okay. What this area of the of the state and of the country is, and then the other um, the other thing is that you know the the U.S. Department of the Interior put forth this vision of America as just this place with so much space. Oh, like so much space to just like spread out and do stuff. And in this particular area of Alaska, between the people who are already there and like the mountains, most of the good land has been taken already. Sure. And so you kind of have to find places to like, I don't know, to squeeze in amidst all the stuff that's kind of already there. That is my my memory of it is that it is a like kind of cramped mini metropolis. Like it is not a people are on top of one another in this community. Um, and, but like, we've also talked about it being a, a crime story. So does it, does it start with, I don't really remember how it starts. Oh yeah. I, I'll, um, I'll get into, I, I was looking for a word that um, is used in, and this is just, it's described as a shtetl, which is the, mm. uh, the word for like a, sm- a small, Jewish village usually in like Eastern Europe or okay. or Russia somewhere but it is it is bigger than that but it is like <laughs> the crampedness and the everything on top of everything nature okay makes sure it, I guess seem smaller than it than it is okay um so yeah the the actual plot stuff what happens is we got this sad sack landsman yes <laughs> um who is a detective in the Yiddish Policeman's Union. Okay. And he is living in a crappy hotel because his life is in a toilet. 
<laughs> and one of the other people living in this hotel with him is found dead. Oh. And so he there's a little bit of an investigation that goes on. Um and he you know, this this case gets filed and Landsman finds out, okay, so his ex wife, who used to work at the police station with him, has been gone for a while, but now she's back and she's his boss. And she's saying, Okay, we got we're getting ready to turn this department and everything over in a couple of months. And so we just need to like close everything. And this one that you just filed, we are just going to put it in the cold cases bin and not worry about it. That's not a thing that he wants to hear, I bet. No, it's not because he's a hard-boiled detective and he's just got a feeling about this. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's a the guy in the hotel is a he's a heroin addict, but he was like shot. He was okay. murdered. There was foul play involved. Okay. Okay. Um but I, I would imagine maybe the system does not necessarily care about him and does not want to look into whatever happened to him. Well, so like formally there is no investigation going on. So when yeah. he goes to the uh the like verbover section of town, which is the like it's this very powerful, like orthodox sect mm. in town. Uh they are not and oh, by the way, Landsman is the only policeman who has ever put any member of this verboverd sect in jail because they are they've got a lot of strings that they can pull and they're sort of involved in organized crime oh, so like, they're the mob yeah they're kind of the mob okay cool 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 and landsman is the only detective who's ever put one of them in jail so when he comes knocking on their doors <laughs> doing an investigation that he's technically not supposed to be doing and also he's like a, a a recovering alcoholic smart mouth. <laughs> that all goes over really, really good. I bet you can imagine. I can imagine. I can I can picture the power dynamics at play here, yes. Um the the quote about Landsman from the New York Times review, which was pretty uh pretty positive overall. Landsman is is more of a nebbish than your average hard boiled detective, but true to the noir tradition, he is an unbeliever, a man shorn of faith in luck, God, and human nature. So you called him a sad sack earlier, and that seems to track. <laughs> He's a yeah, like a sad sack with a distinctly Jewish flavor okay like down down on his luck in a in a way that resonates yeah nebishy is the word for it. sure 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 um so is okay does he get caught up in something bigger than he expects because that's usually yes, how absolutely these things he does. go <laughs> absolutely he does i'm curious to so you remember mostly the the mood and the I remember, I have and a- the alternate history. Do you remember? And and maybe in doing your research, you came across a plot summary or something. Do you remember anything about what happens? I don't remember, or any like any uh, vein of stuff that you would like to explore. Okay, some further? some some. I'm just like going through my mental Rolodex here. This is a fun exercise. I remember. I I think I just have sense memory of these meetings with this you know mob of like going into different. The way that you go into a business owned by the mob and talk to them, kind of thing, and maybe that doesn't happen in this book. I don't have. I don't oh, it clue. does. Okay, great. <laughs> does. Um, he who who does he play chess with? He plays chess with someone. Well, what so is that chess about? chess comes up over and over again, and it's it's again something that I'm pro- just 
the format of our show doesn't sure make it super conducive to like talking about it. But he's Landsman's got this whole thing about chess and he hates the game. And it is because he played it with his dad and his dad was like miserable to play chess with. And he like wrote a letter to his dad that said, please don't make me play chess with you anymore. (laughs) And a couple days after that, his dad was found dead. Oh no. And he assumed, and it is not true, but he assumed for a long time that he made his dad so sad by not wanting to play chess anymore that he made his dad commit suicide. Oh my God. And so the, um, the, uh, Guy who is murdered, his name's Mendel Spillman. Okay. And he is the, he ends up being the son of this powerful Verbover rabbi. Okay. Um, so he's like the, the Tony Soprano's kid, basically. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, and he was also a chess player. And like there, there is a chess gate, there's a chess book in the, in the room. And that is one of the threads that they start pulling to, that eventually leads them to, to who he really is and what his whole like deal is. Um, so they, you know, they track him down. They figure out that he's the son of this powerful rabbi. And they also find that uh, while he was alive and when he was younger, he was, he was sort of believed to have sort of messianic qualities like he could perform miracles this is ringing a bell yes mm-hmm. yeah and he you know he was this sort of beacon of of hope kind of for the and and he could literally perform miracles like there are there are multiple accounts of him like curing somebody's illness or cancer or something or just bestowing blessings upon people that like that then then those people turned around and made like miraculous recoveries or improvements in their condition or, or whatever. Okay. Um, but he is, so we get this through a, um, so Landsman goes and he meets with this rabbi and he like, a, he's wondering, Oh, you know, maybe you, you haven't talked to your son in like a couple of decades. Um, and the, and the rabbi makes a big show of like, Oh my, my son's been dead to me for years. I mourned him, you know, back when, when I when back when he, yes. I you know he was lost to me metaphorically, and so now that he's literally lost to me, I don't need to worry about. Sure, I don't need to worry about mourning. But Landsman's like, I don't. Are you sure nobody's like been in touch with him? Like your wife, for instance, and being an ultra orthodox sort of guy, the the rabbi's like, do you think that my wife does anything that I don't? Oh, cool. Let her do. So that's fun. That's just a fun through line in like ultra conservative religions there of, was all, a, of there many was different a, stripes. I, I think it might have been the Washington Post review or another review that mentioned that like what is his ex is the is Landsman's ex wife Bina, is that her name? Bina, yes. Um so one of the reviews called out Bina as like sort of an evolution for Shabon as a prominent woman character in his work because a lot of his work does center on men and an exploration of masculinity and you know you know masculine power structures and and things like that um so i'm not surprised that also there are characters who are like yeah uh my wife would say nothing and is not relevant <laughs> to this conversation um 
Yeah. Landsman doesn't buy that. Sure. Okay. Of course, because he's he's got a feeling, even though he keeps getting like thrown out on his butt and beat up, and every, all this bad stuff keeps happening to him. He's just got a wild hair about this case, and he's also going through alcohol withdrawal. Oh, yes, I do remember that. Okay, sure, which sure. Which is making him, which is buying Shabon as an author, I think, all kinds of license to make Landsman do a bunch of stupid <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I think is the, like, you have to have him be alcoholic because he is a hard-boiled detective, but then if you have him decide, like, at the it's close to the beginning of your story that his ex-wife's back in the picture and he is tired of looking really pathetic in front of her, like, he's going to decide, oh, maybe I'm not drinking anymore, and that's going to let you do all kinds of stuff with his character that don't that doesn't really make logical sense no, for like things that a person would do. Yeah, it like it puts you know? an external pressure on him that causes him man if you were like playing a D&D character that like had to deal with an external thing that just like makes you roll different and then you have to respond to it. Yeah, like any anything any kind of withdrawal. Yeah would would do that yeah but um so he sneaks to you know they're having this big uh funeral for mendel spillman and landsman sneaks to it and he like jumps into this car and the the mother is in it oh and so you get a flashback from her where you go back to where this rift in the family originally happened and she is pretty sure that mendel is gay Mm. And so he is supposed to get married to um, somebody from one of these other powerful families and he just kind of disappears and his life sort of spirals from there. So she'll hear from him. Uh, I think the quote is like whenever he's in trouble or needs money and they frequently coincide. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's, it's a combination of this, you know, obviously frowned upon you know, sexual sexual proclivity that he that he has, and then also the pressure that is on him as this like messianic figure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um. So he's you know he he goes on hard times and he just kind of bounces around for a while, and then I I will just run through the stuff. Yeah. Please that, hit me. Uh, Landsman and Burko and some other and and Bina and some other people sort of uncover as they sort of roll from one unfortunate bunch of stuff to another. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm my words are bad. <laughs> you know my words. Wait, have you, you ever listened words? to me though? Cuz yeah, sometimes the words, words ain't great. Uh, words are bad. Yeah. Oh, the other thing to know about Landsman is his sister Naomi is a pilot or was a like a small pilot at a small airplane and she died about a year ago. Oh, okay. I do remember that. that he and has a, so like for a very me, recent tragedy that he is. Yeah. For with. me to, for me to throw that at you sort of midway through describing the plot is how I feel like the book sort of threw it at me. Oh, I think really? it was mentioned toward the beginning and then <laughs> dropped off for a while in favor, like in favor of all this mystery stuff. And then it comes back Bef- up sort of midway through. And before really you, after that. before you resolve the plot on me, can you speak to, your experience with like maybe say the first hundred pages this is maybe like a 400 page book um i remember when i rec when i read this book i remember talking to someone about it who had bounced off of it in the first hundred pages and it that is a thing that comes up 
in some of the like kind of user Goodreads reviews that I've read that like it does take a while to Did get going. Did you have three-star Goodreads reviews? I do have some, yes. Okay, but do you want me to talk first? But I want to hear your experience first. My, I mean, so the book starts, like the first five or six chapters, I want to say, is just Landsman, mm. and he is in this crappy hotel, and he is like walking around looking at stuff and doing things. And it's it's some combination of just like being thrown into this into this world, which is vaguely familiar, but not really. I, I think if I had maybe a more of a grounding in like Jewish culture, I might have sure. had more touch points to sort of grab onto. But I really like I did not like Landsman. I still don't think I love Landsman by the end of it, but I didn't I didn't have a sense of him. He was just a miserable dude <laughs> to be around. Yeah. Um and I didn't like he where I pick where the book really picked up for me was there is a chapter after some of this Landsman stuff happens that is just like, okay, hold on, let me just set up the world for you a little bit. Oh, sure. And yeah. that is where I was like, oh, okay, this is this is kind of interesting. And then when it went back, I had sort of more of a background and like an appreciation for the cultural context. And between that and just kind of like getting into the language of the book and the way that Shabon writes, which is, I wouldn't call it like David Foster Wallaceian in its <laughs> in its length, but I also th- like it does just take a while to get going anywhere and Shabon really enjoys just kind of writing things and and luxuriating in <laughs> situations that he's created. Now I I'll read a I have a there are a lot of little turns of phrase that I really yeah. enjoyed in this book but there is like there's this journalist who there's this whole other plot line where uh Burko who is Landsman's cousin and partner, Burko's dad, so Landsman's uncle, yep. was this uh, high-profile guy from Sitka who worked in the, I think it's the FBI, but, you know, like, U.S. intelligence, and did a lot of, like, playing of different, like, Jewish groups, and especially, like, leftist Jewish groups, like, off of each other and neutralizing them in the hopes of, and, and like having a lot of power and being corrupted by it, but doing all this in the hopes of being able to make this, you know, make Sitka a permanent situation instead of a temporary situation. But, um, but he's been disgraced and he's just kind of out of the, out of the thing. And it's because of this journalist named Brennan, um, who you meet kind of briefly. And he's a, he's a guy from the U S who doesn't really know the language. So this, this says, Brennan studied German in college and learned his Yiddish from some pompous old German at the Institute. And he talks, somebody once remarked, like a sausage recipe with footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> so the way, so the way he talks is just very like unnecessarily detailed and florid. And I thought that was a really like, illustrative way to <laughs> describe the way that somebody would talk. That's amazing. Um, yeah, look, I think like the closest analog I know as I know of is if you go to like Greece as a like a classics major oh, and like, sure. try to speak like ancient Greece to, <laughs> to modern day Greeks. Um, do you want to hit me with that good star reviews jingle again, real quick? 
Three star Goodreads reviews. Uh, I'm gonna break the title. I have a four star Goodreads review to start us off. Actually, My four star Goodreads. Um, this is from Lynn. Like the best of Tom Wolfe's writing, which I didn't expect. Uh, Shabon's descriptive language and inventive style sets this apart from other alternate history books about Jews in Alaska. I googled. I couldn't <laughs> find any other books, but if they do exist, please send us an email. Um, while the mystery can drag at times, and so I do want to ask you about kind of the last you know, part of this mystery and how that goes. And this was longer than I would have liked. What kept me going was the way in which the author told the story. Shabon's a mastery of the narrative style, blending crime noir with Jewish cultural and sociological allusions, and also throwing in enough of the Native American Alaskan references to be freaky, to be freaky. Uh, this was a fun schlep. Um, Lynn says, uh, Lena says, <laughs> despite the intriguing premise, it took me quite some time to get into this novel, though I felt a certain amount of detached pity for Landsman. I cert I simply didn't find him involving enough as a character to really care that much about him. It wasn't until the identity of the dead man was revealed that I really felt myself begin to get invested in where the story was going. And unfortunately, that didn't occur until 100 plus pages in. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we'll talk a little right. bit about that. And then just stylistically, there were a couple of reviews. Uh, <laughs> hold on. Before I get into this, because I think it'll be a conversation. Uh, Cassie re gave it two stars and said, number one, chess. Number two, police investigations. Number three, Judaism, Yiddish, red cows, those little hats. Four, Alaska. Uh, I don't know much about any of these topics. And honestly, only the last one piques my interest, which meant from page one, it was going to be an uphill battle for Shabon. And that <laughs> review is just a real fun read. <laughs> <laughs> go yeah. find that one um but a, a number of the th the three-star reviews cite the prose itself as a little challenging the shifting from past and present tense um one review i, I didn't pull a, a clip from it but like talks about the jumping back and forth from past and present tense for like landsman versus other characters which may be a like a nod to how grammar works in in Yiddish. Um, did you encounter that at all? Did you find the prose like particularly challenging? I mean, I didn't. I didn't clock the specific reason why I was having trouble with the prose, especially early on. But I did. That is represented. That is a, my a, experience. Sure. I think. And I think that that one about only kind of abstractly caring about landsmen, mm. like. Caring about him because you know that you have to to go further in the book. Yeah, sure. <laughs> is a feeling I can identify with because before you get to the historical stuff and before you get to the meat of the mystery, what you've got is Landsman. And Landsman is a sad sack, hard-boiled, alcoholic, homicide detective who's divorced from his wife because she had a m miscarriage, more or less. Mm. And I can't think of a more, like like a, a writing prompt style <laughs> character. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it is yeah. so, it is aside from the, the Jewish stuff, which like I'd said, you don't really, or at least I didn't really get a good handle on until I got some more of the historical context. If you take that stuff out, this is just like a stock character of a stock character of a stock character. And yeah. there is not, there's not a lot to grab onto. Sure. And even sure. after, you know, this stuff, Still, he's not a ton of fun to be around, and maybe that's part of the point, I guess, sometimes. But 
he does not like Landsman is not the person. He's not the thing you walk away from this book wanting to talk a ton about. Yes, yes. Or like if you read it a decade ago and are talking with your friend about it now. I'm not talking about Landsman, no. Yeah, you're not going to be like, oh yeah, Meyer Landsman, that guy ruled. (laughs) You're going to be like, oh yeah, the alternate history he created. That was pretty cool. (laughs) And that that is honestly what the, like, if you go to the contemporary uh, top line, like critics of the Times or the Washington Post or something, a lot of it is... The realization of this community is very compelling. The um, the interweaving of a Yiddish culture with this alternate history stuff is kind of fascinating. It feels very well realized as a place that you can imagine and, and want to kind of go to in your mind. Um, and most of them also mention that like the back half or back third of the mystery is kind of like man then he had to end up he had to wind up the plot kind of okay sure you want to hit me with that it's not even actually i find it interesting but not for like the mystery's sake Mm. um so i don't i don't know like he he goes through and he uncovers the plots and it all ends up being tied into this sort of like messianic prophecy thing and they did like the people who are trying to make this happen did want to do it with Mendel Spillman because they did think he was Messiah. But even though he ended up getting killed, they decided to go ahead and do part of it anyway. So what, what happens and to, to talk briefly about the other like historical things that are talked about in this book, like there's a lot of just like, small uh like these things in world war ii happen slightly differently like uh world war ii goes on until 46 and berlin is destroyed with a nuke oh um and then there are there are a couple other things going on in europe but uh, other things you get are like pop culture references kind of like JFK married Marilyn Monroe. You get a reference to Marilyn Monroe Kennedy and her pillbox hat. Huh. Um, Orson Welles made the Heart of Darkness movie. Yeah, I found an interview with him where he said it, it was a it was a, a men.style.com interview where he said, I tried to resist the impulse to have too much fun with that kind of stuff because one could easily get carried away. I didn't want to do things like, quote, the prime minister of England is Mick Jagger. <laughs> in many ways, the book was an exercise in restraint all around. Um, but but the one struck me funny I got was um, Bina has taken away Landsman's like badge and gun, and she says, "In the meantime, I'm going to keep your shield and your gun in this nice pink plastic Hello Kitty zipper bag." <laughs> so I do like like this. This world has changed in some pretty fundamental ways, but you know what still exists Hello is Kitty. Hello Kitty. Yeah. When I was in high school, um, my backpack got stolen out of my mom's car, and for a period of time, I did have a Hello Kitty backpack. I had to go buy a new one, and I bet you really, I bet you really made it work, though. I, I did, I, I did. To be perfectly honest, it was the only one around. It was like the middle of winter. There were no backpacks on sale at Staples, so I had to get what I could get. <laughs> But uh, so I bring up the the historical stuff to say, like, I don't know, like, Shabon, I don't think is trying to make a particularly pointed 
mm. uh, critique of any particular like modern U.S. political figure. I think he does sort of critique a movement, but this came out in what two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Yeah. So it's not. It's not like he's trying to do a bunch of like Bush or Clinton criticism but an an unnamed american like an unnamed evangelical american president comes into power oh and there so the the conspiracy that undergirds this this murder mystery is that um the u.s government like elements of the u.s government and elements of um of sitka including the verbover okay like powers that be um, are conspiring to blow up the Dome of the Rock, which is a real uh, Islamic shrine. Yep. Um, in the in Jerusalem. Yes. Like they are going to blow that up and build a new temple in Jerusalem, and they are going to start relocating Jewish people there. Mm. And from the Sitka end, from like the Verbover end. It is about finding Jews a place to live once this reversion happens and once the, once this land like goes back to the U.S. And from um, this president and his government's perspective, it is part of it. And, th- and this is a real movement, but yes. it's part of this like Christian Zionist movement that holds that um, Jews need to return to like Jerusalem and Israel before uh the second coming can happen yes yeah and so there is there is a very real and and like not not influential like branch of like evangelical christianity that its support of israel is really more about like not i I don't even know if i i i wouldn't say like forcing Mm. the second coming of jesus but just like creating what they believe are the preconditions for this thing to happen, you know? Yeah, the, the term that I've come across is like Christian eschatology um, yeah. alongside mm-hmm. like messianism or the or the you know the next the messianic ushering in the messianic age. Um and you know, a number of interviews with Shabon about this book like mention this third temple of Jerusalem plot point, and he's like, listen. A lot of reviews think that this is really outlandish, and I need you to know that it's not. Like, there are, you can go there, and there are people with like models of what they would like to build if only the Dome of the Rock were not there. And they are prepared to like raise and kill red heifers so that they can, uh, you know, usher in this age. And it is a mix of really like old school orthodox judaism and you know christian christianity and he's like it creates i think the quote is he says like strange oh what does he say you have this wonderful horrible phenomenon of these guys who are working together to bring about completely disharmonious redemption strange bedfellows are always good for fiction good for novelists which is a (laughs) a really like you know that is i think that was said in in you know 2007 his work since then has been a a bit more as i said earlier in the podcast explicitly about um israel and palestine and and the occupation and he he is aware of this as a religious movement that 
certainly benefits him in the writing of this story, but is also causing him great concern because, like, yo, there is a mosque there, so no one, no one in this movement is is quite willing to talk about what you would do to that mosque. Um, well, yeah, and 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 it goes. If I were smarter, we could probably tie this more <laughs> thematically into the stuff we've already talked about about like what happens when you. Yeah, or your religion or just your well-being relies on you trying to take something where somebody else is already. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think you maybe, need. To be, I mean, maybe that's all there is to say I, about it. I don't, I don't know, think you need like, to be smarter to make that point. I think you just make that point a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Give yourself the points for that one. I think you earned it. Half credit. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um. But yeah, so what is the the uh, again, like I said, a, a number of the reviews um both kind of, you know, the plebes on the Goodreads as well as the people who get paid to write about books for their living mention that the like resolution of the mystery or, you know, the the crime hard-boiled detective plot is not as satisfying as the world building in the alternate. Can you speak well, to that a little bit? It doesn't it doesn't really matter that much. Okay. I, I don't even want to. I don't even want to say like what happens. Yeah, ended up killing him because it like almost literally doesn't matter. Like by the time you get to the point where you actually find out who killed Mendel Spillman, mm. the book has moved on already. Like the the thing, the reason why he would have been important was he would have been like so the for the for the Orthodox uh, Verbover people like there is a finding space thing there is also like a messiah thing and so they are in the same like not for the same reasons as the as the christian zionists but they are also like trying to set up the a a messiah Mm. for themselves okay and they thought that spillman was that messiah but even in the absence of him they're like well i mean maybe we need to get the temple set up and do all this other stuff first so like the the even the murder the itself that, is like yeah like the thing that this person would have been central to like they the plan is far enough along because they were trying to like rehabilitate him and, and get him off of the heroin and sort of make him suitable to be a messianic figure again mm. and part of the reason why he got killed and and he was he was i guess the important thing to know is that he was sort of complicit in his own death. Like he sort of wanted it. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, or at least like wasn't set against it and was kind of running away from the responsibility. He, the people, he, the people yeah. he was, the people he was running away from are not the people who killed him. Let's mm, say. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, by, by the time you find out who did kill him, the book is our like the big thing, like the the dome of the rock getting blown up. That has already happened. Oh, okay. And so maybe that's why the the resolution of the murder doesn't feel like it matters that much is because the larger plot that the murder like sets in motion is already resolved. Basically, yeah. by the time you find out who killed oh. him, it's it's sort of. And this happens with like Landsman and Bina sort of getting back together at the end too. Is it just it it all the last like four or five chapters of the book like all feel like denouement because the Dome of the Rock gets blown up and they like our heroes didn't stop or like meaningfully yeah, alter sure. any events at all. 
And so the last part of the book is just kind of finding out what happened and what's going to happen next. And I know exactly what that feeling is. Yes. Uh It is not. And I, I I mean, I enjoyed this book. I, like I'd said, I, it took me a while to get into and the writing style wasn't always my cup of tea, but I did enjoy it. It was just like, as a murder mystery, it mm-hmm. was not really about the murder mystery. It was about this like larger geopolitical thing that is interesting and does mesh with like the alternate history well and like sets you up to do all this research on stuff that's happened in the real world and how the like dynamics of this really play out. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be the value of this work, right? Is like the envisioning an alternate history in a way that like makes you think about what did happen with a fresh perspective like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But to what you're saying about the murder mystery, Elizabeth McCracken writing for the Washington Post uh, referred to the end of the murder mystery as feeling like a pu- like when you when you put in that last puzzle piece where you like you know exactly where it goes it's the last piece it just goes right in that spot and you're like you're satisfied because the puzzle's over but it's not as she said a like surprising revelation it's not oh wow that's what it was the whole time it's ah yes this is how this fits together which is a different a different experience. Yeah, I, I really like that metaphor. I would modify it a little bit. I would say it is like building a piece of Ikea furniture, <laughs> but at the okay. end you have a couple pieces left over and you don't know where they were supposed to go. <laughs> but it seems like the table is fine. Yes. It does seem like the table is fine and it does everything it needs to do. Yeah. It's a perfectly fine table, but probably these pieces were supposed to go somewhere. I hate that feeling where I'm like, wait, did they just give me extra in case something happens? Mm-hmm. And yeah. then I want to know what they think could happen to my couch. See the best prefab furniture I've bought. They have, have you ever bought one that's got, um, like it has got like a long, like, you know, like in an old timey TV show when <laughs> somebody's trying to show you pictures of their kids and they take their wallet out and they flip it. And there's just like this big yeah. flap of kid pictures that falls out of it. It's like a, it's a big thing of that, but like each it's divided up up into a bunch of little compartments that has all the parts for each step. Yes, th- that is very helpful. Yeah, that's super helpful. And so when they're set up like that, often they will just have a spare part pocket instead of putting all the screws together into one big, like dumb sack yes. like IKEA stuff. Is. <laughs> anyway, that's neither here nor there no. nor anywhere. But what I'm saying is that. There's a lot of stuff I enjoyed about this book. The murder mystery and the protagonist were not was not really. And when it is a murder, when it's billed as a murder mystery that is entirely (laughs) in that protagonist's head, you can't help but sort of view those things as as negatives when they don't work all the way. But I think you, but you were not incorrect earlier when you said like, if you're talking about this book with people several years after you've read it or oh you just read it and i read it a while ago like you're not going to talk about some of these characters you're going to talk about the like where it's set and the alternate history stuff and the real history that it's playing with like that seems to be what people have really responded to with this book well and and is as is so often the case in books where the protagonist kind of leaves you with a blah feeling. There is mm. always some character close to that person who you wish that the book 
Ooh, who is that about? And so I think for me, it's, I mean, I, I would like to see more of, more of Bina, but Burko as a like half native, half Jewish character who is like sort of right in the middle of things. Like his dad was, was a big like mover of affairs and he's involved in this investigation too. And he's got a wife and like two kids and his wife is pregnant again. So he's got like more on the line Mm, than mm -hmm. Landsman does. I just, I, I think that there's a version of the book that's more centered on him that has more to say about, the relation between yeah uh, the Jewish people who were living here and the native people who were there before sure and how they've like gotten along because he does have a couple of like really strong scenes where he talks about that a little bit especially there's like a confrontation with his with his dad that happens that is that is pretty affecting and pretty good but you don't get a lot of him because he is off dealing with his like the stuff that that ties him down to the mortal plane, you know, like he's off <laughs> dealing with his family or dealing with his dad or like, yeah, not running off to somebody's funeral so he can hop in somebody's car because he's got nothing to lose. And he's coming off a he's coming off of being an alcoholic and going through withdrawal. That's like just there, an, there are, that's an inherent tension of some really great secondary characters is that they usually have a biographical sketch that is like, yo, tell me more but that actually prevents them from being like the driving force of action because usually that means they have character relationships that'd be like, you can't just go out and do that stuff. Yeah, I right. need you home. <laughs> I need you to be here for things. And they do that. Well, and, yeah. And maybe it's like a, like a democratic primary thing. Oh, sure. Like, Man, I wish, I wish this person had run. But in reality, if that person had run, you would have gotten to know them better <laughs> and you would have gotten just as sick of them as you were of everybody else. <laughs> True. Yes, and also we'd lose their Senate seat, so they're not allowed to run. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. Andrew, I'm so glad that you read this book um, and that we got to talk about it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. We should should say that more. What? Often. Because I'm always glad that a book was read by one of us. Yes. And that we got a chance to talk about it. Yeah, thank you for telling me. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, if folks at home want to tell us what they thought about this episode or about this book or about whatever, you can send us an email at overduepod <laughs> at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at Twitter and Facebook.com slash overduepod. Thanks to Scott, Tasha, Becca, Annie, Adam, Brad, Greg, Sean, Allegra, Sarah, and Harvey. Someone named Harvey who was very excited to hear about our Harvey episode a few weeks ago. Hey, hello. To Harvey. Say hello to Harvey. My Tom oh, Waits like cover. It's my Tom Waits cover. Oh, I thought you were talking. You singing about Harvey Dent as Batman. <laughs> Swear to me that you're Harvey. Uh, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Well, it's called Google Podcasts now. I should change that. Um, and our RSS feed, we're also available on Stitcher and Spotify, or you can just listen right there on the website if that's the kind of person you are, yeah. which is totally fine. That sounded more judgy than I intended it to. <laughs> uh, you can support the show financially by going to patreon.com slash overduepod. You also get bonus stuff early, including our current long read project, Genie Babies. We're going to be recording uh, this month's episode of that and posting it for patrons this week, I think. 
Yes, um, and then we'll have the bonus episode. We'll have a bonus episode at the end of the month, which is episodes three and four of Genie Babies on the main feed. Yeah. So. so if you if you support us on Patreon, you get stuff early. But if you can't do that, that's completely fine, and you will get all the stuff we do eventually. Yep. Um, and then you can also find our schedule for the rest of the month. Craig, what are you reading next week? Yeah, I'm reading How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang. I'm just looking at our website, which says our August schedule, and then everything is in September. So I got to fix that. Um, Websites are hard. It's just that one part that I don't ever edit. It's just that one sentence that says our blank mm-hmm. schedule. But... And then uh, next month, as you may well oh, yeah. know if you've been listening for a while, is our seventh, sixth or seventh annual Spooktober Spooktacular, where we yep. read spooky books all month. And we talk like ghosts from it's a Scooby-Doo <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> so, yeah, we should have our schedule finalized for that soon, so keep an eye out for that. Andrew, do you want to reveal what we're doing at the top of uh, over? Yeah, we can do that next week. All right, we'll Let's do it next week. Tune in let next him, week let him, to find out what we're doing at the top of Spooktober. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. And until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.